Well, we did it. <laughs> we have, uh, as of today, finished our study of 1 Corinthians. Uh, this is the 26th book of the Bible that we've studied together in the 11th years of our church. And I just want to begin this sermon by praising God for His Word and the work that He has done in us and through us, uh, through the 26 books that we've studied together. It's, it's awesome. God has grown us and He has kept us faithful by working in us through His Word. Paul had the privilege of planting the church in Corinth in about A.D. 50, and he pastored there for about 18 months, a year and a half, and then he left to continue his missionary journeys, planting and pastoring other churches. About two and a half years after he left, he wrote this letter that we call 1 Corinthians back to the church because the church was having all kinds of problems. And, and those problems were actually threatening to tear the church apart and to ruin their witness of the gospel in Corinth. Um, you can see the kinds of issues that he addressed by the list of sermons that I provided for you in the, bu the bulletin uh, there this morning. And what we have learned throughout our study of 1 Corinthians is that all of those problems go back to one main problem. All the issues find their root in one main problem in Corinth. The Corinthians had a false view of what it means to be spiritual. Uh, that view was influenced by their culture around them. And that view was defined not by what God says, but to be spiritual was de defined by human wisdom, natural abilities, and social status. They valued these things even within the church. Human wisdom, natural abilities, and social status. And Paul's main point throughout the entire letter has been to redefine what it means to be spiritual. Paul basically says this, true spirituality is not defined by those things that you are valuing. True spirituality is defined by God's wisdom God's power demonstrated through the cross of Jesus Christ, and that gives us status with God. So now, this morning, we come to the very close of Paul's letter, chapter 16, verse 5 through 24. You will be served well if you will get a Bible and open that on your lap so that you can reference it as we talk through these verses this morning. We come to the close of this letter today, and more than many other times throughout the letter, it really feels like a personal letter from a former pastor to a church instead of what we call a book of the Bible. This is not a book. This is a personal letter from Pastor Paul back to the church at Corinth. And here at the end of Paul's letter, he discusses some logistical issues and we're going to take away from that three encouragements. My prayer this morning is that we will all be encouraged as we minister together for the gospel. Together 
for the gospel. So Jay has already read this text for us this morning. Now let me point out just some of the logistical issues that Paul addresses. There are six of them. Look there in verse 5 through 9, Paul gives his plans. You can see that Paul is currently in Ephesus in verse 8, but in verse 5 and 6 he plans to travel to Macedonia and then come visit Corinth after he goes through Macedonia. But look at verse 7. Paul says he doesn't just want to make it a short stop. He wants to spend time with them in Corinth. Why? Because he loves this church dearly. As hard-hitting as this letter has been now that we've studied for 40 weeks, as hard-hitting and as many issues as he has addressed, Paul has done it because he loves them deeply. I feel that way about you. I can understand how uh, Paul feels about that church. Uh, Verse 10 and 11, after he talks about his own plans, he talks about Timothy's visit. So because Paul was going to be delayed by going to Macedonia first, he wants to send Timothy ahead of, of him to Corinth, his best man, Timothy. And in chapter 4, verse 17, you might remember that Paul said, I'm, te- I'm sending Timothy there, quote, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them in every church. Now, this is not Timothy's first time in Corinth. Acts chapter 18 tells us that Timothy and Silas were part of the church planting team when the church was originally planted under Paul in Corinth. So he's going back to them. They already know and have a high regard for Timothy. But I just want you to imagine now Timothy going back. Imagine being the guy who is sent back after Paul writes this letter to deal with these issues. Imagine being the pastor to go pastor that church in the kind of state that they're in. Paul has just rebuked powerful members of the church and called for major changes in their conduct. Paul, in this letter, has confronted division in the church, neglect of church discipline, taking one another to court, having warped views about sexuality, marriage, and divorce, engaging in false worship, and using their so-called spiritual gifts to try to make themselves look more spiritual. All right, Timothy, it's all yours. Go get them. I mean, just imagine this guy's got his work cut out for him when he arrives. It's no wonder that Paul writes verse 11. So, Let no one despise him. I can understand why after coming back and trying to pastor the church through those kinds of issues, how they might despise Pastor Timothy. Paul's plans, Timothy's visit. Then in verse 12, he talks about Apollos' visit. Now, Apollos was not uh, new to the church at Corinth either. Remember, Apollos came right after Paul. Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered. So he was the next in line to pastor and minister to the church in Corinth. And some in Corinth were really, really eager 
They were big fans of Apollos. In fact, if we want to do the math, about 25% of the congregation, because we remember the division there between Paul, Apollos, Peter, and then those who were so spiritual, they said, we don't need any human leaders. We're just for Christ. You know, I just follow Jesus. Well, look at what Paul says here in verse 12. I strongly urged Apollos to visit you. And he will come. But look right there in the middle. But it was not at all his will to come now. As you can imagine, there's all kinds of speculation behind that phrase. Commentators go wild. I I think the most plausible reason is that Apollos knew that he was part of the division that was going on in the church, and he didn't want anything to do with it. He didn't want to throw fuel on that fire at all, so he was staying away until things calmed down. That's not inspired. That just seems pretty obvious from the text to to this reader. So Apollos' visit, verse 12. Then look at verse 13 and 14. As Paul often does, he gives closing exhortations. He sort of summarizes the basic message of the letter uh, as he closes. Then verse 15, we'll get to that in just a moment. Verse 15 through 18, uh, there were some visitors from Corinth that visited Paul while he was in Ephesus, or while he is in Ephesus, right, at this present time. And Paul praises God for Stephanus, who uh, seems to be, from what we know from the letter, a wealthy or influential uh, man in Corinth, and his associates, Fortunatus and uh, Achaicus. Those two names are actually pretty interesting. Uh, Fortunatus is like if we called somebody lucky, uh, hey, Lucky, how you doing? That was Fortunatus. And then Achaicus is man of Achaia, where that's the region where Corinth is. And so um, these are likely St- uh, Stephanus's, um business associates. Well, the point is they traveled to Ephesus and were a great encouragement to Paul there. Whether they did that on business and just stopped by to spend some time with Paul, or whether they actually went there specifically to deliver some news about the church and encourage Paul, we're not sure, but Paul praises God for them here in verse 15 through 18. And then finally, he gives the final greetings. If you're familiar with the uh, letters of the New Testament, you'll know that there's always the final greetings, just as you would do. You would close up your letter, and you you would put sincerely, or with all my love, or however you want to sign it off. And so Paul gives final greetings. Look there, verse 19, from the churches of Asia, from Aquila and Prisca, who are former members of the church at Corinth, and then his team in verse 20. But look at verse 21 through 24. Paul picks up his pen to sign the letter himself. Now, you might think, well, of course he did. He's the one who wrote the letter. But for a number of reasons, including bad eyesight, Paul didn't write most of his own letters. He had one of his team members write those letters for him. So now he picks up the quill to sign it himself. And notice this signature. He immediately, it's got a sharp edge to it. Not the quill, but what he writes. It's got a sharp edge. He closes the letter with a curse and blessing formula. Curse and blessing. 
And, and that indicates the seriousness of this letter and the seriousness of the issues that are being addressed in it. Verse 22, Paul knows that when they receive this letter, and, and by the way, it's going to be sent back probably with Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaica, and, and they're going to read it to the whole church at the same time. It, it doesn't go by email to, to Mike and to Jack and to Daniel. It, it goes, the whole church will sit and listen to what Paul has written to them. Paul knows that there's going to be opposition to what he says. You can imagine. I mean, think about the things that he's discussed. And so Paul says to those people who will oppose his uh, letter, he addresses them first, and he warns that judgment awaits those who, quote, have no love for the Lord. Judgment awaits at the coming of Jesus. And Paul even says, all come, Lord Jesus. Judgment awaits those who have no love for the Lord. However, the blessing portion, grace is experienced by God through the Lord Jesus Christ that causes us to love the Lord Jesus. And then he ends in verse 24. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Do you know this is the only one of Paul's 13 or so letters that he ends with his own personal love for the church? He always ends with God's grace and God's love to you in Christ, but here he ends with his personal love for this church. Why? Well, you can imagine. They need to be assured of his love after they hear the sledgehammer of this letter, right? Well, those are the logistics. And if you spend any time weeding, uh, weeding, reading this letter this week, you might have been weeding too. If you spend any time reading our sermon text, you'll know that the end of this letter is far more, far more than just some closing logistics. I came away from this closing with three encouragements, and that's what I'd like to spend the rest of our time together on. Three encouragements that arise, not just out of this letter, but arise out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Three encouragements, ministry, partnership, and faithfulness. Paul closes his letter by emphasizing ministry, partnership, and faithfulness. Let's take those one at a time. First of all, an encouragement toward ministry. The first thing that we understand is that ministry flows from the gospel. How do we know that? Because Paul has spent 16 chapters now articulating and applying the gospel. This letter is full of implications and applications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how it started, that's in the middle, and now that's here at the end. Just remember for a moment, chapter 1, verse 2, this great articulation of what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. To the church of God that is in Corinth. This is chapter 1, verse 2. This is how he starts the letter. 
knowing he's going to address all these issues. Here's how he starts the letter to them. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. I give thanks to my God always for you. Why? Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, the grace of God that sanctifies us, calls us to be saints together, and sustains us guiltless all the way to the end. That same grace gifts us, empowers us, and sends us out to minister to others. We don't receive God's grace as buckets. We receive God's grace as funnels so that we can be ambassadors of His grace to everyone around us. Ministry. Ministry flows from the gospel. And so here at the end of chapter 16, the end of the letter, we have an encouragement to ministry. The second thing that I notice about ministry is that ministry devotes yourself to serving other people. What is it that we learn about ministry from the end of this letter? Well, everyone in this text is, is in ministry. Everyone. Look, the Apostle Paul is in ministry to other people. There's vocational ministers like Timothy and Apollos. And then I want you to notice that there's everyday Christians who worked regular jobs like Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, and Aquila, and Prisca. They were everyday Christians, not vocational ministers. Friends, what that teaches us is that ministry is for every Christian, not just the professionals. We're all called to minister the gospel and the grace of God to other people. And then Paul takes the household of Stephanus and he makes an example out of them of ministry. Look at verse 15. He calls a special attention to this household. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. What a thing to say. What a thing to have said about you and your family. Paul commends Stephanus and his household. He calls them fellow workers and laborers in the ministry. Stephanus and his household were the very first people to become Christians in Corinth. And that, that's where the church started with them. 
they're now visiting Paul in Ephesus, and they're probably going to be the ones to bring the letter back to the church at Corinth, as we said earlier. And Paul encourages the church to receive them and recognize their example. Look at verse 16. I urge you, be subject to such as these. People like these, you need to submit to. You need to recognize their influence. Maybe Stephanus was one of the elders in the church. Verse 18, give recognition to such people. People like these are the ones in your church that you should be recognizing. Remember what one of the root causes, root problems in Corinth was? They were recognizing people of social status. Paul says, no, no, no. These are the kinds of people that you should be recognizing. Why? Because Stephanus, as a wealthy or influential businessman, is an example of how the gospel has flipped social status value system upside down. Stephanus and his household have devoted themselves not to being served by others, but to serving others. The Corinthian culture was no different than our own. Status in society meant that you had people reporting to you. You have people serving you. But here, Stephanus and his household have made it their business to serve others. They've devoted themselves to serving others. Listen, they're following the Lord Jesus Christ, who said that true greatness is being the servant of all. Jesus, the Lord Jesus, said, whoever would be great among you, must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, Paul, hopefully you and me, we understand how Christ has served us through the cross and that calls us, compels us, and empowers us to serve others and devote ourselves to that kind of ministry. And friends, the lesson we learn here about ministry is that ministry is devoting yourself to serving others. Now, wait a minute. God calls some Christians to go somewhere else and do something somewhere else to minister to others. For example, the Apostle Paul, Timothy, Apollos. But for Stephanus, Aquila, Prisca, they're serving others where they are doing what they do in their own town, in their own places. Stephanus is going back home. Now, Aquila and Priscilla, or Prisca, as she's called here, was a little bit of a different case, weren't they? Because they used to live in Corinth, but they fell in love with the ministry, and so they actually followed Paul on his missionary journeys and went over to Ephesus. That's fantastic. We see people doing that still today. But normally, Mom... 
You don't have to go somewhere else and do something else to devote yourself to serve others, do you? Those of you who work outside the home, God calls us to minister to other people where we are, doing what we are. I want you to notice something else about ministry that we learned from this uh, last chapter. Something else about ministry. Look at verse 7. Paul said, so I'm going to go to Macedonia and then I'm going to come see you. And while I'm there, I don't want it to be a short time with you. Look at verse 7. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Ministry is subject to the will of God. It's devoting yourselves to serve others, but it's also subject, submits itself to the will of God. Now look, Paul was a planner. We can see his plans. Look at any one of his letters. He didn't just, you know, do whatever he wanted to do. Paul was a planner. Maybe he was a type A like me and some of you. But ultimately, Paul trusted the Lord to direct his ministry. We see that in that little phrase, if the Lord permits. He says, here's my plan, if the Lord permits. That's the Latin phrase, Deo Valente. Many of you have probably heard that before, or the initials DV, Deo Valente. And that comes from the Bible. For example, James said, reasoning with his readers, James said, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, I will go to such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Ken Hughes says, Deo Valente, this concept of if the Lord permits, submitting to the will of God over everything, Deo Valente is to be the constant refrain of our hearts as we conduct the affairs of our life. If the Lord wills must be written over all of our future plans. Question, are they written over your future plans? That includes your relationships if the Lord wills, your job, if the Lord wills, your children's lives, Deo Valente, as the Lord wills, retirement planning. And remember this basic truth, friends. If God's will is that you wake up tomorrow, you will. And if it's not, you and I won't. We live under a sovereign God and ministry, as well as all of life, submits to the will of God. Another thing I see here about ministry is in verse 8, ministry prioritizes open doors. And yes, I know I misspelled prioritizes there. Ministry prioritizes open doors. Here's the planner, the Apostle Paul. He's making his plan, going to go here, do that. If the Lord wills, and then he says in verse 8, but I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a wide door for effectual work is open to me. See, Paul is an example of one who prays for ministry opportunities. He asks every church to pray for him as he shares the gospel and ministers the gospel to other people. 
He doesn't just pray for it, but he looks for opportunities to minister the gospel. He works for opportunities to minister the gospel. And when an opportunity presents itself, he is willing to reorder his plans to take advantage of that opportunity to minister. Now, friends, before we say, of course he does, before we say, of course, if I see an opportunity to minister someone else, I will reorder my plans too. Remember, what this text teaches us is that great opportunities often feel like huge interruptions. Someone wisely said, what we call an interruption might just be a divine opportunity. All throughout our day, all throughout our week, we have our plans. And then they're interrupted. So often I get grumpy about that. Rather than seeing that maybe this interruption is a divine opportunity to devote myself to minister to that person who's in front of me. Ministry devotes themselves to others, submits to the will of God, prioritizes open doors, and then finally, ministry expects spiritual battles. Look there at verse 8. Pardon me, verse 9. A wide door and effectual work has opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Ministry expects spiritual battles. Acts 19 tells us, about the adversity that Paul met. His gospel ministry in Ephesus, where he is writing this letter now, was so successful that he basically shut down the pagan false idolatry that was going on in the city. And the silversmiths who made their uh, living selling the little idolatry trinkets in their Times Square outside the temple of Artemis, they stirred up a riot against Paul and his team that just about cost them their life. This was no small adversity. Ministry expects spiritual battles. Now look, when we minister in our schools or in our neighborhoods or in our homes, we're probably not creating riots. We're not expecting life-threatening opportunities. But there is still external opposition to the gospel, isn't there? There's still internal opposition to the gospel, like, for example, internally being fearful of what someone might say, that rejection that might happen, doubting that God will do anything with my meager witness here. Listen, friends, when internal or external adversity rises up, you just remember this. Christ who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, 1 John 4. You just remember that the gospel, not you, is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And you remember that God purposefully uses ministers who are jars of clay so that everybody knows the surpassing power of real gospel ministry belongs to God and not that jar of clay. Ministry flows from the gospel devotes ourselves to serving others. 
submits to the will of God, prioritizes open doors, and expects spiritual battles. Friends, this is our job description. Wherever we live, in whatever we do, may we be ministers. The second thing, and that was the long one, the second thing that I see coming out of this end of this is an encouragement to partnership. Did you see that Paul is not just going around partnering on his own? There's partnership everywhere here. I put partnership second because all of these relationships are not personal, just purely personal relationships. And they're not just merely within the church. It's not like just those people who were part of the same community group. These are all partnerships in ministry. And it's ministry that creates these partnerships, focuses these partnerships, and flourishes these partnerships. And so at the end of this letter, look, there's churches in partnership together. The church at Corinth, verse 5, church at Macedonia, chapter uh, verse 8, Ephesus, verse 19, the churches of Asia, verse 20, the church in Aquila and Priscilla's house in Ephesus. And then there's individuals who are partnering together for the gospel. Paul, who's writing this, verse 10, Timothy, verse 12, Apollos, verse 17, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, verse 19, Aquila, Prisca, and don't overlook verse 20, one another. All of them partners together for the gospel. Here's the lesson. Friends, value and cultivate gospel partnerships because God designed life and ministry to be done in community, not individually. We're together for the gospel within this church, but we're also together for the gospel with other churches and individuals around the world. I want you to just notice a few things about the partnerships from this text. First of all, partnerships are a necessary source of practical help. Why does God design life and ministry for partnership? Because we don't have all we need in and of ourselves. Look there, verse 6. Paul says, perhaps I'll stay with you and even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Paul says, I need help. Travel back then was way more difficult than it is these days. Travel back then required stops and layovers and resupplies. Travel back then meant that you needed partners. And Paul certainly needed help. Look at verse 11. It wasn't just Paul who needed practical help. But he says, don't abuse Timothy. <laughs> I'm sending him there to deliver this message and pass to you for a while. But then, verse 11, help him on his way in peace so that he can return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Help him on his way. See, often the Lord gives one person or one couple the desire to go and then gives other people the desire to help them go. And isn't that beautiful to be able to partner together? Like, for example, 
David and Ermira Snyder in the UAE. They're willing to live somewhere else in the world to advance the gospel. They don't have all they need. They need practical help to get there, to live there. So we get to be partners together with them for the gospel. Secondly, I see here about partnership. Partnerships are a necessary source of personal encouragement. Look at verse 7. Personal encouragement. Paul says, I don't want to just see you now in passing. I hope to spend some time with you. Look at verse 17. He says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. Look at verse 18. They refreshed my spirit. You know, the truth is, we all get dry and discouraged sometimes. The encouragement we need is not by just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, giving yourself a kick in the rear end and keep on going. What we need are brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us. That's partnership. So let me ask you a question. Who refreshes your spirit? Who do you give praise to God for because they refresh your spirit? And the opposite side of that same question. Who would say of you, why, they refresh my spirit. When I'm around them, I feel life and energy, partnership. Another moment on partnership. Partnership here is also a source of spiritual growth. Now, can you grow just with your Bible alone in your prayer closet? Sure, but I suggest it will be limited and stunted. What we need are others to help us grow. We need not just the Bible, we need Bible people involved in our lives. Jesus calls us to make disciple and then teach those disciples all the things. Why? Because partnership, spiritual growth is a community project. We're never meant to live life alone. And so Paul says, I'm sending Timothy. Paul says, you needed Apollos to come along and water what I planted. And now I'm sending Stephanus back to you. Why? To grow. Heed them. Submit to them. Recognize them. So again, just a question by practical application. Who's helping you grow spiritually? Is anyone discipling you? Do you have that kind of partnership in life? Or are you going it on alone? I, I, friends, if, if you're going it on your on, alone, you're missing out on a great, great blessing in your life of spiritual encouragement and growth. And, and then also, who are you helping to grow spiritually by your investment in them? That relationship becomes reciprocal, what I found. It's not just that I disciple that one because I'm so much more spiritual now. The discipleship process is 
reciprocal. We have folks in our church who are involved in a relationship like that. If you don't have a relationship like that, see one of the elders. And we would be happy to point you in the direction of someone who would be happy to help. I just want to make one more very quick point here on partnership. Something that could be easily overlooked. You know what partnership does? Partnership is a necessary source of unity. Partnerships. They help promote unity. Look at verse 19 and 20. The churches of Asia send you greeting, and all the brothers send you greetings. That's just a throwaway, right? No, 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 no. Look, that global greeting serves as another reminder that the Corinthians are not in this alone. They're part of a much larger family of Christians around the world and churches. Remember, we're part of a global church. It's not just us. And then look at verse 20. Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Think about what's going on in Corinth. A fourth of the church loving Paul, another fourth following Apollos, another loyal to Peter, and another saying, I'm just with Jesus. This is a divided church, and Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. I don't even want to shake that guy's hand, let alone kiss him on the cheek. Don't overlook that. The holy kiss was a distinctive Christian practice that served as a sign of unity. Especially unity where there were formerly barriers and dividing lines. The church is now Jew and Gentile. The church is now Greek and Roman. The church is now wealthy and poor. The church sees a master greeting his servant on, with a holy kiss on the cheek. Why? Because in Christ, we're all one. Unity. Friends, the help, the encouragement, the growth, the unity that we need is found in partnership with others. And one final encouragement. Ministry, partnership, and faithfulness. Look at verse 13 and 14. Paul ends the letter summing up what he hopes that they'll walk away with in five quick imperatives. Just like a parent who is sending their child out for the first day of school, just like a coach giving one last encouragement before his team takes the field, Pastor Paul encourages the Corinthians with a few brief encouragements, imperatives that summarize the message of his letter. Look at verse 13 and 14. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. The first one, be watchful. In light of the issues that Paul has addressed in this letter, be watchful. It is an encouragement to be on guard against the pressures and the attitudes of the culture around them. Be watchful. Stay alert. Keep your head on a swivel. 
watch for temptations. Friends, that's a much needed encouragement for us too, isn't it? Temptation to sin comes from our flesh, but it's fueled by the culture around us, by the world around us. Number two, stand firm in the faith. Be firm, be firm in the faith. This is a military image. Stand firm, hold your ground. Don't fall for false gospels. Don't quit because it gets difficult. Don't retreat before the enemy. Stand firm, Paul said this a number of times, encouraging the Corinthians. Like, for example, chapter 15. I would remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. Be firm in the faith, brothers and sisters. Number three. I think number three and number four are together. They don't have to be. That's just my opinion and the opinion of another uh, a number of commentators. Um, I don't think that we should see the Paul immediately turning to all the males of the church and just talking to them. Act like men. No, I think what he's saying here is act like men, be strong. These two ideas are often linked together in the Old Testament. Be strong and courageous. Paul's encouraging the Corinthians and us to be strong and courageous, to live out the gospel by a holy life in ministry to others, no matter what may come at you, and they will come. And then finally, I think most importantly, verse 14, before they take the field, what does Paul say? Let all that you do be done in love. Now think back over the last 16 chapters and think about how appropriate that is as a last word. Hey, church, let everything that you do, because you have all the gifts. You're like gold star church. But let it all be done in love. It's the most important thing. Jesus said it's the first and second greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said it's by your love for one another that people will know you're my disciples. Love. Let all be done in love and encouragement to faithfulness. So I, I just ask you as we close out this letter, does love define your speech? Does love characterize your relationships with one another? Does love motivate your service? Is love the true mark of what you consider to be spirituality? Because that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus was watchful in temptation. He didn't sin. Jesus was firm in his obedience of, to God. Jesus was strong, never backing down from the suffering that he knew he would face. But he set his face like a flint. Jesus did everything that he did in love, pure love that sacrificed himself to rescue us from sin.
And friends, that's the message of the cross. And even if the world thinks it's foolishness, it is the power and wisdom of God to save us. May we saturate ourselves in it and live it for his glory and our good. Let's pray together. Father, as we have studied this great letter to the church at Corinth, may we be sanctified and preserved through it. May you grow us. May you deal with our heart, our issues. And may you cause us to shine the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through our faithfulness and through our love for one another. And even as we celebrate the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would be honored. In his name we pray. Amen.